Today's workplace podcast disclaimer, JT Wilson. This podcast is intended to provide general information about various recent developments in employment law and human resources best practices. Nothing in this presentation or in the comments of Ms. Johnson, Ms. Shannon, or any guest should be considered as the rendering of legal or other professional advice, and it is not directed at any specific cases or circumstances. Listeners are responsible for obtaining the necessary advice about their specific situations from their own counsel. These materials are intended for educational and informational purposes only. The presentation and these materials represent the opinions of the participants and not those of their law firms or companies. No part of these materials may be printed, photocopied, or otherwise reproduced, recorded, or stored, or transmitted in any form and by any means, electronic, mechanical, or otherwise, without the prior written permission of today's workplace podcast. Welcome to today's workplace, a podcast created to keep employers current on the latest employment law trends while providing proactive solutions to the everyday issues arising in today's rapidly changing workplace. Is your business prepared for today's workplace? Let's find out with your hosts, Barbara Johnson and Belinda Reed Shannon. Welcome to today's workplace, and thank you for joining us for the first in a series of episodes about what the workplace will look like post-pandemic. Today, we are very excited to welcome to our show, Jay Jamrock, a well-respected futurist who has researched and predicted workplace trends for over 25 years. Barbara and I had an opportunity to hear you, Jay, give a presentation to the National Employment Law Council conference about 20 plus years ago. At that point, I didn't realize that there were professional futurists, but I recall being very impressed by your remarks and your insights. So it's it's been great to follow your career and your work since then. Let's start out our conversation by you telling us what a futurist is. What, what do futurists um, do? <laughs> Well, thank you, first of all, for just saying it's 25 years. (laughs) So I've been at it for almost 40 now. Mm. Um, So it's been a a long journey and a growth journey along the way. As a futurist, if you're not very curious and want to discover new things, it's hard to be a futurist. So you're always trying to discover and be curious. Being a futurist is all about sensing where the trends are and trying to get insights around the trends. So there are a number of things you look for as a futurist. One is, what is the trend that's happening? But the trends never come true. You can look at futurists 25, 30, 40 years ago, and most of the predictions do not come true. It's because there are counter trends, and a good futurist will look for the trends and the counter trends. For example, high tech, high touch, think global, act local. And so there's trends and there's counter trends and how those trends interact is where you start looking, sensing for what are the insights you're gonna gain from them? What are the alternative scenarios that may come out? Because sometimes the counter trends overtake the trend. And then what you try to look for if you're a good futurist in today's world, because people just don't want to hear about 20 years in the future, 10 years, or even five years. 
what are the implications for, in my particular case, for managing people in organizations? What are going to be the next practices that are coming down the pike? So you try to help people see around the corner. What a lot of people tell me, tell me, you help me see what I don't know. And so I, my purpose, a lot of times I'll tell people is to give you a headache. I want you to think. So in essence, that's what's being a futurist. It's being curious, it's watching trends to counter trends, sensing where they're going, what are the insights, and then what are the uh, actions that you may want to think about as you go forward. And one of the possibilities is that you give people a headache in the process. <laughs> Correct. So that, that being said, describe for us your professional journey. Tell us about um, your bio. Where'd you go to school? What training do you need to become a futurist? What has your career path been? I'm a high school dropout. And not because of academics, but because home background, things like that. So right. I grew up in... Uh, I. Dropped out of high school in 1964. Then I got drafted. I, well, at first I traveled. I lived in San Francisco for about three years during the, in the 60s. Then I got drafted, went to Vietnam. After Vietnam, I had trouble adjusting to coming back to the world. And uh, when I was on R&R, when I was in Vietnam, I went to Bangkok and I saw some kids at a kickboxing tournament. And I said, I had never seen anything like this, the tradition, the customs, the martial arts and all this other stuff. So I was back in California, about a one-way ticket back to Bangkok, spent about three and a half years living in the jungle, doing Muay Thai and studying Taoism. I went from there to Macau. I lived in Macau for about six, seven months doing martial arts. And then from there, I went to South Korea in a city called Daegu, with a mountain outside of Daegu, and lived in a monastery for another year doing martial arts and studying Taoism. Then I came back to the United States, met a woman, fell in love, asked her to marry me, and she said no. I said, why? We're living together. You say you love me. Why? She says, you're a bum. You're a high school dropout. You're smart. You should go to school, and but I'm not marrying you. My mother didn't raise me to marry a bum. And so she gave me a bunch of conditions, and some of them were funny, but she had a whole list of conditions I had to meet to marry her. And I went back to college, lied about my high school degree, and I ended up getting a, a BA, a BBA, an MBA, and what's called an ABD uh, in organizational psychology. ABD is all about the dissertation. And there's a long story behind that too. Mm -hmm. um, but I was actually, I had lived on the street. So I was actually a pretty good con man. And uh, I was an artist and um, pretty much I was making a profit going to college. I was making a lot of money going to college and professors didn't like the fact that my PhD thesis, I was getting money from corporations to start a company. Uh, and I was hiring other grad students to do the research for me because uh, they were giving me money to start a company. So I hired people and that was my PhD thesis around strategic workforce planning. And that's how I got to be a futurist was looking at strategic workforce planning. So I, that's the company I started. It was called HRI. 
I ran that company for many years. It was a think tank, an academic-based think tank. Took it off campus in 2000 because we were doing a lot of good research on organizational effectiveness, looking for people who wanted to invest in my company. And I got some news from a person who was mentoring me around getting investment. They said, no one's going to invest in you, Jay. You got a great company, but nobody's going to invest in you. You're just a researcher. You need some, if somebody's going to give you millions of dollars, they want somebody who can handle millions of dollars. And so I met Kevin Oakes, found out that we both grew up in the same neighborhood in Western Massachusetts, worked on the same pickle farm, same tobacco farm. He's younger than me. He's a very successful entrepreneur, a great CEO. So we partnered, raised a lot of money, uh, rebranded the company to I4CP. And we've been growing at about 20 to 30% a year wow. over the last 10 years. And so with, under his leadership, uh, he's, uh, I run research and Kevin, Kevin Martin is really the head of research, but I'm part of research and I'm the co-founder. And he has been a tremendous CEO and has grown the company very fast. Yeah. So that's that's the short version. <laughs> yeah, the short version. I'm quite speechless. I don't even know where to begin. I, I, I stopped after high school dropout. I, I, I was, <laughs> that was a drop the mic moment for me. But OK, well, it was the yeah. family environment. I didn't have a, a very stable family. So. Well, you've, you've done quite well, and it's interesting how in a time period where there weren't a lot of people trotting the globe as, you know, much as you did, I think that, you know, having that type of exposure and experience only added to your ability to do what you've done so well for these many years. So it's all very yeah, interesting. I, I credit that, uh, that living abroad and being a citizen of the world has helped me mm-hmm really think more broadly about trends, global trends, things like that, Mm. than if I was just in the United States. So, yeah. That's good. I also have an interracial marriage for about 50 years. So that that has added to my experience in life. Mm -hmm. Wow. Amazing. When's the book coming out? Ah, I, I was, somebody asked me once, when are you going to write a book? And my answer to her was, I don't want to be famous. (laughs) Oh, gosh. And you surely would if you published your life story, Jay, because most of us can't claim as interesting a life. Kevin Oakes, who's my partner, said he's going to write a book about my life and the byline of it. And some of this will be true. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. So I'd like us to take a moment to pivot uh, to the workplace. Um, And before we start talking about the future of the workplace, um, I'd like to know, um, what did the workplace and the workforce look like 25 years ago sure. and contrast it to what it looked like in 2019, right before the pandemic? Sure. And then maybe, maybe you can tell us what changes did you correctly predict? And then any predictions that just didn't materialize? Well, we used to write hundreds of scenarios a year. And that was part of what we called environmental scanning, looking at the environment and writing scenarios. And we would write hundreds of them a year. And we wrote scenarios that actually predicted 9-11. We didn't say planes into, into uh, you know, buildings and things like that. But we knew something was up because there was two trends that were happening at the same time. 
And that was information overload and haven't had mass society. And so every time that happens, there is a lot of war, pestilence, disease, and chaos that being a historian, you would see these patterns. And in the past, that is, you know, information overload, have and have not society has created a lot of chaos in the world. The human beings in the workplace, if I look back 25 years and to the end in 2019, then I'll talk about what I've seen shift. It's been interesting because human beings are human beings and the workforce itself has not changed dramatically. We've added technology along the way, we've added other things, but the way human beings react to work in the workplace has been pretty stable. The management ever since Reagan and got rid of PECO, if you remember way back then, management has had the upper hand in the labor market. Pretty much employees have lost their leverage and all the leverage was with management. And so the big trends was how is management changing or not changing as it relates to human beings in the workplace. And it's been slow. There's been progress. This is like, it's like taking two steps forward, one step back, or sometimes it's like taking one step forward and two steps back. Mm-hmm. You've seen changes coming out of the 60s with backlash in the 70s. You saw a lot of the me generation in the 80s and the 90s, a lot of growing have and have not. There was a big push to make the haves richer because the theory was they create jobs, they invest in companies, they invest in things. So they grow jobs, they grow companies. Mm -hmm. And so the whole process has changed. If you read the book, uh, Evil Geniuses, um, and I got it right in front of me. So it was Kurt Anderson uh, Mm -hmm. who wrote it and finished it about a year ago, but he really documents this whole process. And um, we grew to be where greed was good because supposedly it created jobs. It, the whole trickle down effect that it would trickle down and help people. But it was hard to see it really happening that way. The rich kept getting richer and the gap between the have and the have nots kept growing bigger and bigger and the middle class was disappearing. So you, you saw a lot of tension But since management had the upper hand in labor market up until 2019, there was very little that could be done about it. Um, And a lot was written about it, but not much was done about it. There was not a lot of energy in Congress to do much about it because they believed in evil geniuses and that they created jobs. So we got to give them bigger tax breaks. And that's the way it went for years and years. And, And I'm summarizing and I'm generalizing a lot but that's a lot of years to cover. But we made progress in the 70s with a lot of social issues. Um, I remember the first conference I had where I mentioned the word diversity and I had a corporation talk about it. I actually had three white male CHROs actually get up and walk out of the conference. And it wasn't that big of a conference, so you could see them walking out of the conference. And when was that? When when did you say that was? This is the latter half of the 80s, early 90s. Okay. Mm-hmm. And when diversity was just starting, it wasn't 
It wasn't even inclusion yet. It was just diversity. Right. Never mind equity issues. So it was just, so we make two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes it feels like I say, one step forward and two steps back. But there has been progress. I really celebrated, and especially my wife, celebrated the uh, new Supreme Court justice. And big step forward. And you see it. You know, it's our vice president. Our diversity in our current government is uh, mirroring the rest of the community. So there is steps going forward. Mm-hmm. I am always hopeful, or else I'd be really depressed. <laughs> yeah. You know, COVID-19 has changed the world in um, unforeseen ways. Um, In addition to COVID-19, in the past two years, we've had the aftermath of the George Floyd murder, economic upheaval. There have been major disruptions in pretty much every aspect of society and every industry from healthcare to meatpacking. So what we'd like to explore with you now is kind of the near future, (laughs) the next few months, the longer term, (laughs) five years, and then 10 years from now. And so let's start with the short term. What are the major changes to the workplace that are occurring as we emerge from over two years of a global pandemic? Uh, uh, You you sort of framed it well when you listed all the issues we've gone through in the last two years. I felt that at some at some parts of the last two years, society was ready for a collective nervous breakdown. You failed to mention the political environment at the same time. And so we've gone through a lot in the last two years. One of the major trends that I've seen is a shift from management having the leverage in the labor market to employees today having the leverage in the labor market. You're seeing a big shift today where employees, whether it's ESGs and the sustainability, social issues, having a big impact on companies. In the past, when it came to sustainability or ESGs, companies did it primarily because they thought the consumers wanted them to behave a certain way, be more green, be more sustainable. We did a study 20 years ago on sustainability, and it was mainly consumer driven. We saw companies that were more sustainable back then had a uh, higher correlation to market performance. But what we're seeing today, a lot of it's employee driven. And so employees are demanding more of their companies, demanding more of the companies with ESGs to have that purpose in life, to take more um, progressive stances on social issues. I mean, the most current one is Disney's fight they're having with uh, the governor of Florida. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you see it everywhere. Uh, employees at Delta and Coca-Cola rising up against the voting restrictions in Georgia. You're seeing, you know, where they move the all-star game out of Atlanta because of it, but this was employee driven. It wasn't consumer driven. And so there's been a big shift now where management having the leverage in the the labor market to employees, you're seeing the rising wages, the better benefits, the better managers. I mean, we see a lot of trends in this area that is driving it in short term. So that's the big shift I'm seeing right now. How long that will last now, I don't know. 
if we go into another recession, which a lot of people are predicting for next year, will employees still have the upper hand? I don't know. Is it because of the low unemployment rate or is it a true trend? I don't know. That's what we're watching. We're trying to sense the trends and the counter trends in that area. What about uh, the trends as it really, the short term, mid term, and long term trends as it relates to face to face working? Yeah, okay, that's a good question. So, one of the things we were watching as a trend even before the pandemic was the growing uh, demand from employees to have more control and flexibility over their work lives. And this started even before the pandemic. Um, people wanted to feel like they have more control, they have more flexibility in their work lives, not even a work lives, but in their own lives. Mm -hmm. What happened during the pandemic, that control and flexibility, even though they had more flexibility from working at home, it was about 42% were kicked out of the office and had to work at home. About 58% still had to come to work every single day because they were essential workers. But the environment was felt like it was controlling you. You couldn't go to a concert. You couldn't go to a ball game. You couldn't go to the theater. You couldn't go to a restaurant. I mean, everybody was telling you what you had to do. You had to wear a mask. You had to get vaccinated. It was like other things were controlling you. And so psychologically, people today right now want to feel like they have more control over their lives. And that includes their work lives too. And that means they want more flexibility and about where they work, when they work and how they work. That includes essential workers too. They want to feel more control over their lives too. And they want some sort of flexibility and control over their lives too. And so it's a very complicated mess right now about the office, what's the purpose of the office? Mm -hmm. Is it important to come to the office? And in some cases it is. Uh, in a lot of cases, most managers want their employees back in the office. Mm -hmm. And in most cases, if you wanna get promoted, you had better be in the office. You have to play the politics to get promoted. And I, there's tons of examples where People did not play the politics well and did not get the promotion that they wanted. So it's more than just productivity. I, you know, so, you know, a lot of people say, well, I can be just as product, pr productive at home. You should only measure me my, my outcome, not when I work and how I work and where I work. You should be measuring me and my outcome. That's all well and good. That is very, and I'm all for that. In fact, I started work from home and flexible work arrangements in 1986, primarily because I couldn't afford to pay people. And so I had to give them freedom to work for me. And so I always said the quality and quantity of research being done on time. I didn't care if you worked on the beach, you worked at night, I don't care where you did, so long as you got the quality of work done on time. In fact, I used to tell a story that if we'd agreed that this research project had to be done in three months, and you're smart enough to do it in two days, take the three months off. <laughs> so long as the quality and quantity was done on time, we agreed to that time frame. Yeah. I'm exaggerating, of course, but you know, but that's not the way, you know, that is part of work. Another part of work is do you have ambitions in your career? 
do you want to be developed? Do you want to be promoted? Do you want to have good mentors and coaches? A lot of that are, gets around the office. It's hard to do that over Zoom. It can be done, but most managers don't know how to do it or do it right. So where flexibility is rising right now, uh, after you know, people are being told, yeah, there's hybrids. There is, you got to come back to work or you got to come back three days a week or two days a week or Monday and Wednesday, et cetera. What is working right now is intentional flexibility. flexibility. So intentional flexibility means, Brenda, you and I will meet. I'm your boss. You and I will meet. We'll, de we'll decide, we'll know what is needed for you to come to the office. Why would you come to the office? Is there certain reasons why you would? Is it to begin a project with your team? Is it to bond over the team? Is it to celebrate a project? Is it just to meet with your peers and go to dinner or go to lunch or go on and because we are social animals, but it's intentional flexibility. I don't know if that's going to last long right now. I don't know. You, we used to have about, depending on which data you read between five and 15% of the workforce was remote or flexible. Um, it went up to about 42% during the pandemic. Yeah, I don't think it's going to stay at 42. I don't think it's going to go back to 15. It'll be somewhere in between. But there is a lot of things that are done in the office that are important for people's careers. And mostly that's politics. Mostly that's being around people. Right. And it's hard for managers to really manage both a office workforce and a remote workforce at the same time. Mm -hmm. So if you have a team that some are in the office and some are at home, and no matter how good of a manager you, it's awful hard because Brenda, you're working at home. Barbara, you're working in the office. Barbara's jealous of Blenda because she's not working. She's watching Oprah. Okay? <laughs> and Blenda's jealous of Barbara because you have the office, you have the boss's ear all the time and playing right. office politics and you're getting away, getting all the better benefits and that I'm not getting. And there's some managers right now to say, if you want to work at home, we're going to cut your pay and we're going to cut your benefits. We're going to consider you a contract worker. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So it, right now there's a lot of confusion. Yeah. We're try, everybody's trying to work it out. Yep. By the end of this year, we may see more, more clo uh, closure on what it is to be a worker, whether it's an office working home. Now, remember, there's 58% are essential workers, too. You look yeah. at people who run the railroads, who run transportation, who run the energy grid, who are in hospitals, who are policemen, firefighters, essentials. They worked every day and came to work. We don't want to create a two-tier society either. Those who have to come to work and those who can work at home. Yeah. So it's it's a balancing act that we're going to have to figure out over the next year. It's tough. I don't have the answers to it. I think I do, but I don't know for sure. You've been listening to Today's Workplace with Barbara Johnson and Belinda Reed Shannon. If you like what you heard, Click subscribe so you don't miss out on future updates and episodes.